Arjo helps create safer and more efficient healthcare environments, from patient handling and mobilization to hygiene and pressure injury prevention. Arjo offers a range of solutions designed to help you navigate the challenges of today's healthcare settings. Learn more about Arjo and their solutions at www.arjo.ca. www.arjo.ca. One of the things that really trying to promote here is that the solutions will need to be industry-led community-driven and then government-supported. I think we need to be leading the way as innovative providers, as an innovative industry. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. Despite having fared better than most countries during the initial waves of the COVID-19 pandemic, Australia has been grappling with long-standing systemic challenges in its senior care system for decades. Two months before the release of the final report of Ontario's Long-Term Care Commission, the Australian government issued a groundbreaking commission report to explore the current seniors' care system and the challenges that will need to be made in the future to meet the needs of Australia's ageing demographic. Australia is looking for innovative ways to reshape the system and improve care for its seniors, and there is much we can learn from each other as we work to make change on opposite ends of the world. In this episode of Coming of Age, I am delighted to speak with Marcus Riley, a board director of the Global Aging Network and member of the steering committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Older People. Marcus is also Chief Executive Officer at Balikara, a charitable organization providing care and support to seniors. We discussed the current seniors' care system in Australia, the similarities and differences in the challenges both countries are facing, and the path forward in building systems of care around the needs of our aging populations that are underpinned by the rights of older persons. Marcus, welcome to the show. I am so delighted to have you join us today. It's, uh, you know, it's been quite a, a harrowing time in seniors' care, not only in Canada but around the world. Uh, we've heard so much over the last months in the Canadian landscape about the successes of Australia, and you come today wearing a multitude of hats. Uh, you play some global roles, but then you also have your role as a leader in seniors' care in Australia, and so. Really want to to get a sense from you because through this, the media in particular have compared apples with apples. Ontario's long term care system is the same as Australia's, and same as, as as the Netherlands, the same as Switzerland's, the same as UK. And as we were looking at the impact of COVID nineteen on our seniors uh, population, and especially on our care homes. You know, we really struggled a lot in educating people uh, on the fact that things are different. Could you speak to our listeners a bit about how Australia's seniors care system is structured and funded? 
Sure. And Donna, thanks very much for having me on the, the podcast. And the long-term care system in Australia, a couple of overarching points to, to really give context. Firstly, it's a federally run system. So uh, the national government is the be-all and end-all in terms of the, the care system here. It's the the regulator, it's the funder, it's the moderator, it controls supply. Um, so, so it's certainly a national system. A, a quick side comment in regards to the pandemic period, that has led to complications given a lot of the regulations around uh, COVID protections and, and COVID regulations have come from state authorities. So we've had this complication between different levels of government, which is really created a lot more uncertainty and, and problems that didn't need to be uh, didn't need to be there for the system and, and those who access services. But coming back to the system overall, uh, so as I said, it's a federally, federally run system. Um, the government controls supply uh, and it largely subsidises the services that people access, be they in-home services or uh, accommodation based services, what we call residential aged care. And then consumers or users of, of the system will contribute financially pending assessments that government makes of their income and assets. And there's essentially three tiers to the system. There's the entry level, which is uh, what people access to get some low level support in the home, be that domestic type of assistance, um, some very basic personal care, perhaps some uh, social support and some low-level allied health type services. Then the home care part of the system is um, becoming the, the largest and that's where people access a package. It's a, it's a package system of levels one to four and that's becoming, as I said, the, 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 uh, really the, the biggest part of the system across the country and then the third aspect is the residential care or long-term care uh, environment. And that's certainly been under increasing scrutiny in, in recent years. And obviously we'll talk more about oral commissions and other focus points in, in Australia over more recent times. So we've got this uh, system that has been largely in place in its current form since about 1997 in terms of the way the system is administered the compliance regime and legislation which underpin the system and the way in which it's funded. So it's not a, a, a task-based system then, and it is a much more integrated model that's more population-based and needs-based? It, well, it's certainly population-based in theory. It, it's, it's not currently needs-based, and that's a really important point because one of the things that most of us are fighting for, uh, both providers of services and users of the system is that it moves more to a, a needs-based system at the moment. Government very much controls and regulates the supply of services. So you may be someone who is assessed to need a service and have the means to access it. However, you aren't necessarily guaranteed a package or a, or a, uh, a place in a residential care facility in any quick time. It, it's very much dependent on uh, what's available, and that availability is driven by the levers that government pull in terms of supply, both of home care packages and of residential care places. Yeah, it's so interesting. We we in Ontario 
We have approximately 40,000 people on our wait list right now for our, what would be your residential care services. We took out, as you know, because I know you were, we had the privilege of, of having you here in Canada for the, the Global Aging Network conference prior to the pandemic. We rely heavily on long-term care and institutional care and We've taken 4,500 spaces out of the system over the last year by by virtue of emptying rooms so that we don't have more than two people in a room. And so what are these people waiting for? Um, our average length of stay now is well under two years, and it's um, it really becoming more end-of-life care as, as we think about it. And we've had to do a real rethink over the last year. I think there's there was never a real recognition or an acknowledgement. And I don't think people actually really wanted to know what long-term care was. Nobody really wanted to talk about an enormous stigma. And, and so governments didn't invest in it. Uh, we didn't make successive governments didn't make any changes. And it's, um, it's, it's been really tragic for us because as our population's aging and in, in Ontario in particular, in the next 13 years, the population over 85 is going to double. And yet, uh, we are just, we have, 30,000 beds that have to be redeveloped because they're in these old, old homes. We are, have 30,000 beds that the government has announced they're about to redevelop, um, but it takes three to five years, if not longer, to redevelop them. And it really is going to take us a profound rethinking about how those pieces of the puzzle fit. But but we are very siloed. We have home and community care, very isolated. Mental health care is separate as well. Then we have acute care, which is separate, primary care, which is separate. And then we have our, our seniors care in long-term care, which has completely been outside of the, the entire system. I think it's what we experienced in in Canada really impacted exponentially by the fact that we've neglected this this portion of our care system and and our living system quite honestly. As you think about your challenges you you spoke about the needs uh, need to to move to a needs-based system. What would you say your biggest challenges have been over in recent years, so sort of leading into the pandemic and, and perhaps you can start to take take us through when and if the pandemic impacted that. There's probably three key uh, challenges that have been the, the main issues over recent years and certainly remain the, the key issues moving forward. One is workforce and that's just the universal issue for for us in Australia at the moment, no matter what uh, part of the, the sector or area of service you're looking at, it's uh, a huge challenge and uh, both in terms of needing many more workers and better trained and, and uh, better skilled workers across residential, across home care, etc. And we've got adjacent sectors that are competing for essentially that, that same type of worker, be it the disability sector or um community and, and health, uh, and that's this is the dearth of, of um, suitable people at the moment. The second one is around the supply of home care packages. So we've had over 100,000 people in Australia waiting for, who've been assessed for a home care package but waiting to get one over the last 12 to 18 months, and that has, as you can imagine, huge complications for people. And, again, you've got 
providers willing and, and able to provide services. You've got individuals and families who need and want to access those services, but but the system sits between those two parties and, and prevents the, the right solutions from being put in place. Uh, and the third key issue is is around funding. And one of the, the clear areas that the Royal Commission recognised was that the system is just plainly underfunded. Now, yes, existing funding dollars could be used more smartly and more effectively, but it's just grossly underfunded at the moment, particularly in terms of residential care. And that's now playing out in, in different ways and, and being recognised um, by the public, by the media, and to a degree by the government, but solutions are still being pursued in regards to some sort of adequacy around the funding picture. In terms of the pandemic period, certainly Australia, uh, certainly up until recently, has has fared very well, relatively speaking, to the rest of the world in terms of uh, the impact of COVID-19 and in and in all aspects, in terms of um, lives lost, in terms of spread of the, the virus, in terms of impact on people's livelihoods and, and well-being. Not to say there hasn't been impact, of course there has, but but compared to the scale in you know, North America and Europe and other parts of the world, it, it hasn't been to that scale. We certainly had the benefit of hindsight going back, you know, to March last year when things were really unravelling in other parts of the world. And Australia had the opportunity to actually see that and and basically have a, a couple of weeks to make decisions which which turned out to be crucial as far as um, preventing a you know widespread impact that that most other nations saw. Having said that, the one area through Australian society that has been exposed, if you like, in terms of um, lack of proper attention has been the aged care system. The lack of attention that had has been given to aged care in preceding years was, as I said, laid bare during some of the circumstances that did uh, evolve as far as uh, aged care environments were concerned, as far as lack of attention to aged care workforce, etc., and, and and certainly lack of priority to older people um, as members of society. Again, we didn't see the, the scale of that sort of impact that, that unfortunately you guys saw in, in Canada and, and across North America in particular, but proportionally it was quite significant for Australia in terms of outbreaks and, and what was exposed through that period. So as it did across the globe, it did shine a light on the aged care system in a different way and that hasn't necessarily led to any particular outcomes at the moment, but it certainly has elevated the um the significance of aged care and indeed uh, older people in in the eyes of the the public here, um, but nevertheless the key challenges around workforce, around supply of necessary services, and of appropriate funding levels are still very much key problems and do not yet have solutions being aimed at them by policymakers and various levels of government. We certainly found that where our homes were hardest hit, it geography mattered. And I, I think similarly, just your, your country's location and the impact of the pandemic on your country, and, you know, as you said, everything's, everything's relative. For us, 
the homes that we saw hardest hit, uh, where we saw devastating loss of life, really were in those hotspots, those uh, geographic hotspots with a lot of community spread. And, and, and of course, where we did have the impact, we lost staff. Despite different funding mechanisms and governance structures, the challenges Australia has been facing in terms of long-term care are very similar to the issues we face here at home. Shortages in staffing, a history of insufficient funding, and long wait lists are some of the issues that Ontario and Australia share. Marcus and I talked about these issues and what changes are being made in both countries. So, Marcus, I want to come back on workforce, but I, I, I did want to uh, ask you about your royal commission. So, in Ontario, we had a, a provincial uh, commission reviewing the impact of the pandemic and, and the provincial response to the pandemic, especially in the first two waves. And that that commission brought forward some recommendations, including on workforce and staffing, but also on beds and and how our long-term care or or residential care actually fits in the continuum of care or or not. How did your commission first come to be? I know that it was was underway by the time we we started the pandemic. And I certainly welcome uh, your sharing some of the recommendations that came out of the report and uh, any considerations that the commission may have made or the government has made uh, in thinking about its response to the implementation of the recommendations, especially in light of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a really fascinating process to observe when you try and stand back from it and obviously being uh, more closely connected to it, it, it's it's a more intense experience altogether. Donna, I must confess, I, I, I will try not to be cynical in terms of policy and, and, and government approach to this to, to our aged care system, but it's, it's hard not to be. And I've been involved with the system here for a couple of decades and I've had different involvements in terms of advocacy and, and trying to engage you know, with governments and, and whatever colour they might be um, politically. But the, the reality is we've had 15 years plus of really inadequate attention from at a government level to the aged care system. And a great example of that is in going back from about 2017, the preceding 10 years, we had 11 different ministers in the federal government responsible for aged care because it was just this portfolio that was seen as being unimportant and hence we saw inadequate policy as a result of that sort of attitude towards it. The Royal Commission was was really called as a political response to some really escalating media attention to issues that were being brought forward through some people's experiences with different different parts of the aged care sector. So and indeed the the Federal Government called the Royal Commission on a Sunday, knowing that on the Monday evening, one of the most prominent current affairs programs here in Australia was going to unveil a two-part feature on absolute horror stories that people were experiencing in the aged care system. So that was the that was a political response to it. The media coverage did expose failings of the system, and it did that through showcasing some people having absolutely horrific experiences with um, individual providers or individual circumstances. So I think it's fair to say that we have a good system here in Australia and by and large there's a good level of 
care and services provided. Some of it is is absolutely excellent and and world-class and innovative, but there is also an element that was completely unacceptable. And there were residents of of care facilities, there were home care recipients of aged care services and, and families and indeed staff who were receiving standards of care that were completely unacceptable. Um, there were there were examples of abuse. There was a range of horrific episodes that were rightly exposed, and that then led to this media attention, which then led to a, a political response from the government calling the Royal Commission, which is the highest level of inquiry here in, in Australia. Um, the commission inquiry was interesting in the sense of that the lead commissioner sadly passed away through natural causes um, about a, th- a third of the way into the, the commission process. So that led to a reappointment. And and then obviously we had the, the pandemic period through the course of, of last year as well, which, which had an impact but didn't necessarily influence proceedings, but certainly had an impact in terms of the logistical aspects and perhaps some of the, the coverage certainly. There were some key themes which came out of the, the commission. Before touching on those, it's also worth highlighting that the, the two commissioners leading the inquiry unfortunately failed to agree on some of the fundamental recommendations to come out of the Royal Commission process. So when it came to the question of how the system should be funded into the future, how the uh, what authority should be overseeing the aged care system here, they disagreed. And that greatly reduced the pressure on the government to commit to the right sort of solutions. It created confusion amongst the, the media and the and the public in terms of what are the right way, what are the right ways to take the, the system forward into the future. And rather ironic given the way the aged care system has been administered here in the preceding 10 to 15 years that we had this um, unfortunate uh, disagreement amongst the commissioners when it came to the final report Having said that, there were some some key themes which are really appropriate and and hopefully will be driving forces for a redesign of the system into the future. One was that the system needs to be uh, underpinned by the rights of older people and that it needs to be a needs-based system. And there's a great comparison that we can make here in Australia at the moment to our disability system, which going back uh, a few years, the government of the day committed to a a new disability system which moved that sector to a a needs-based system. So theoretically, at least, if people had an assessed need, they could access the services and support that they required and and indeed deserved. The aged care system isn't yet based on that sort of approach. Um, So that was the first point, rights-based and a needs-based approach to the system and and basically rewriting the, the legislative framework that that provides a structure for our aged care system here in Australia. A second big theme was the attention to workforce, and, and obviously we've alluded to that already. That was certainly a key pillar of their recommendations and a raft of things being um, promoted on the, in line with that theme. And notably, the other key aspect of the Royal Commission's report and recommendations were the way the system is administered by government, to be quite frank. So that looked at the funding of the system, the, the legislative detail, the statutory bodies and government departments and agencies which are responsible for regulating the system, for 
monitoring compliance, for controlling the distribution of services and, and supply. It really was from the get-go of the Royal Commission, it was a uh, their recognition that the government and the relevant departments had failed to really design the system properly and administer the system properly. And, and it was heartening to see that because it, it's a harsh reality of, of um, the system here for a long time. And that doesn't excuse what we've seen by way of really poor standards by some providers operating in the system. Of course, that does not excuse some of the terrible things that were exposed and some of the poor practices that, that have been going on. Yet the government all through that period have had the the powers to properly penalise, sanction and, and rid the system of those sorts of providers, but they weren't diligent enough and, and effective enough to to really wipe out those sort of providers and ensure that people were getting at least the minimum required standards of services and support. So that then led obviously to the government's response uh, to the recommendations from the Royal Commission. We've seen uh, a response given last month in the, the government's federal government's budget for the coming 12 months and obviously with the longer term forecasting. There were some good steps taken in terms of the direction of the government's response uh, and some of their financial commitments, but by and large, grossly inadequate in terms of what's actually needed. The key fundamental issues around how the system is to be funded in the long term, i.e. through some sort of special levy or through general tax revenue or through a different user contribution scheme, those key questions were not answered. And clearly with an election coming up next year, politically challenging to do that, but it was necessary, but but not followed through on by government. And secondly, there was a lack of commitment to actually ensuring that a a new aged care system will be underpinned by a a rights-based approach and a needs-based system where people can be guaranteed to access what they need once they're assessed for, for that sort of need. The positive steps they took were certainly committing to releasing more home care packages. So we talked about the 100, 120,000 people who've been waiting for, for home care packages. Over the next 12 to 18 months, they'll release up to 80,000 more packages. So that is good. Um, obviously, it still leaves a gap and, it, and we've got people waiting a long time, but it's heading in the right direction. And they have made some, as expected, some commitments around how the system is regulated and some new rules in terms of staffing hours in residential care. So one of the the key changes that will come in soon is that there is to be 200 minutes of direct care per resident per day in residential care facilities. There will be some adjustments for the case mixes in, in regards to that regulation. Of course, that has huge implications in terms of funding and, and uh, resourcing uh, to meet that sort of requirement, but the intent is certainly there in terms of addressing, at least to some degree, <clears throat> the staffing complements across residential care services. Australia's Royal Commission highlighted many long-standing challenges in the system and put a significant focus on increasing and strengthening the workforce. Marcus and I discussed what can be done to encourage more people to enter this rewarding field and the virtues of caregiving and supporting our seniors. 
I'm interested in as as we you know one thing we're really struggling with and and workforce is is a global issue, and every everyone I talk to in Canada. Uh, regardless of the province, everyone keeps telling me that uh, immigration is going to be the solution. And when I I speak to colleagues such as you, uh, Marcus, I realize I'm not sure that immigration is going to solve the problem here. And, uh, you know, what we're struggling with is not just how we're competing with other parts of the system. And, And I haven't come across any country that's done workforce planning well yet. And we've lost so many frontline staff over the last 16 months. One, they left because out of fear uh, of the pandemic. Uh, two, they they left because it was time for them to retire. Three, many left out of exhaustion. They were burnt out. Uh, and others left because of the stigma of the care they were providing. And with the negative media, uh, and the the really heated focus on all of our long term care homes, regardless of of how they fared, everyone was sort of tarred with the same brush. Enormous stigma around those who work in the sector, and we are losing our nurses in particular to to new sectors. So film and television need need nurses. Uh, School boards need nurses. Airports and uh, companies like Amazon are recruiting uh, nurses and regulated staff for infection prevention and control, for testing, for vaccines. And so even the traditional health workforce model is breaking down and we are seeing uh, it, though we are still seeing uh, many of our frontline move to hospitals as hospitals, uh, frontline staff experience burnout. You know, I'm really interested in ageism, the stigma around aging and the stigma around those who work in the aged care sector and whether you think there is a co-relationship that has created more challenges for those in seniors care and aged care to recruit people to come in to to work in this space. I, I'm, I'm always amazed um, with the, the teaching hospitals that we have. And whenever I speak to students, I used to always ask students about where they were going to, to work, if they were nursing students or medical residents. And are you going to work in pediatrics? Are you going to work in mental health? Are you gonna, where are you going to go? So many wanted to go in hospital and a lot wanted to go into pediatrics. I didn't hear a lot of people saying that they wanted to go and work with seniors. What are your thoughts on that? Is it, is, is it ageism and the stigma of the sector or is there something more structural to it? I think it's all of the above, Donna, to be perfectly frank. And I, and I think to different, to varying levels and to a degree across the different disciplines that we need to be working in the, the aged care system. And just to your remarks around immigration um, and involved a lot with our government here at the moment in terms of the the workforce challenge and and there's various bodies the government set up to look at developing solutions for for the workforce issue and it it clearly has to have all levers or multiple levers being pulled to try and develop a solution one of them is immigration but it's not a silver bullet it's part of a solution Um, we're looking a lot around better programs around traineeships and um, work placements for for those who are looking at studying and becoming involved in, in the aged care sector. Um, all these different aspects are not a solution on their own, but they need to be part of a, a, a 
a more wide-scale approach to attract more people to work in the sector. Um, again, we've got competition, so those who might be suitable or qualified and, and really interested in, in care support type roles. There's a range of options to them in terms of different sectors and at the moment aged care in Australia is the poor cousin in terms of pay rates and arguably in terms of conditions. So there's some fundamental issues around around those factors, pay rates and conditions, which need to be addressed so that they're not barriers to people either remaining in, uh, remaining, uh, in the sector or, or being attracted to the sector. And then we've got these cultural issues that you referred to in terms of ageism and the way the, the work, uh, the aged care work is, is perceived. I think that is very much a factor. I think it worked a bit in reverse during the pandemic period where people were seeing the need and the virtue of, of working in an industry like aged care, which they may not have been noticing before. So I think that actually had, there was a, some positive effect from, from the pandemic period in that regard. But by and large, though, there is a, a stigma of sorts because it's it's not seen as having great opportunity in terms of career progression. It doesn't have uh, attractive conditions, and it's it's part of this environment that's really um, has a stigma attached to it at the moment. One of the things which was really evident through the Royal Commission process here was that there is a distrust in in the community towards the aged care sector. Not necessarily from those who've had direct experience, but from those who are basing their opinions on seeing the negativity and, and the horror stories in, in media coverage. So that is certainly having an impact in terms of people, and particularly younger people and graduates who are looking at different options across the health sphere that they're deterred from, from really looking at aged care. I think there's been some positive examples in other disciplines, such as hospitality type fields such as business management and, and facilities management where those sort of streams have been attracting new people to the industry and and they are impacting positively and, and they're, they've got opportunities to progress in terms of different sorts of roles, different sorts of involvements and, and obviously with different size organisations offering those opportunities. But it's really that core area of, of nursing and personal care and to a degree allied health that needs to be addressed and certainly addressing the cultural issues around ageism, around aged care, the key issues and key factors that need to be addressed. And there's lots of different approaches that need to be pursued in terms of better relationships with tertiary and, and educational institutions, um, the training sector in, as far as uh, the quality of training that's being provided and the partnerships with employers so that we can have this much more positive pipeline of, of of workers coming into the sector and and certainly some of the things that we're looking at here at the moment is um, you know if we look at that think of a funnel of, of people uh, potentially coming into the sector that how much more can be done at the top of that funnel so that people who are coming through that that funnel that pipeline are, are suitable to work in the industry have got the skills and, and and right qualifications to work in the system and and then can be part of this wider pool that providers and can, can be tapping into to, to find suitable people to support and, and care for older Australians. It's going to be such an interesting next te- decade as we as we think about how how we are going to respond to the needs 
you know, in my view, and I've, I've said this, uh, we have a new minister, I said this to our, our new minister the other day, that I, I actually think the workforce shortage and crisis, uh, and I, I believe that we are, that is the crisis that we need to put our mind to, is going to force some of those more structural changes in the system aside from other pieces. So what, instead of having the legislation, I, I think it's going to be the lack of specialists and the lack of people who can actually provide the care that will cause that force better integration and alignment among the different pieces of, of the, the care continuum from independence through to end of life care. It's a huge issue, and it and when you think that it takes four years to educate a nurse, or you know six to eight years to educate a, a medical specialist, or uh, six years to educate a, a, a nurse practitioner, we just don't have the luxury of that kind of time when we're looking at uh, the just what the retirement rates are going to be like. One thing that's that's really emerged for us as well is the recognition of the role of family members in providing care and family caregivers, unpaid caregivers, or we're calling them essential caregivers now. Is that a phenomenon that's really emerging in Australia as well, where a real recognition of, of the role of family and the, their value as a caregiver? It's certainly recognised by those who are within the sector. And by that, I mean, you know, the importance of the relationships, the the roles that family members or others play in terms of any manner of different methods of support and increasingly in the residential care environment too where um, we're looking at what we call care partners. So they are uh, people critical to the to the health and well-being of, of those residents and whether it's family members who are there for mealtimes or for companionship or whatever role they play. Um, an example of that is in the, through the lockdown periods we've had of where visitors have been prevented from coming into the care environments, we've advocated strongly for recognition of these what we call care partners that these people need to be need to be able to come in and continue to provide the support to their loved ones because they play such a, a and I think the word essential is a, is a good one they play this essential role in their lives. So the recognition is building, but it's not formally recognised enough as far as the system and, and the design of it. And there is some more, uh, some increasing availability of respite type support and through that recognition of, of what our system calls informal carers. And interestingly, we've been looking at some concepts with different organisations now who are wanting to, in the right way, sort of formalise that that family or, or friend network who who do provide different supports to people, particularly those living in their own home. So how that can be better uh, coordinated so it, it's really providing maximum value. And often we see people wanting to help and contribute but but not really knowing perhaps what to best do and, and even how to ask what, what they can do to help. So I think there is some really valuable work that can be done in, in that regard. Uh, I think coming back to that, that workforce challenge too, we, we've been talking a lot here about the casualisation of the workforce and often that discussion is is very critical of providers in in regards to the high percentage of the workforce that are in casual status. But the reality has been a lot of workers are actually preferring that casual status as opposed to moving to a permanent position because of hourly rates and, and flexibility and being able to work in different places and, and be more 
selective, I guess, as far as when and, and how they work. So, again, there's some systemic issues there which need to be better thought through because it's not as simple as pointing a finger at an employer and saying we should convert everyone to, to permanent status. And similarly, it's about people who want or who want the ability to impact in, in people's lives and, and really see that they're making a difference in terms of someone's health and well-being and, and their enjoyment with life. And again, where there's inadequate resourcing, where there's inadequate funding, parts of the system make that very difficult, at least in the eyes of, of some. So again, coming back to your question around ageism and, and the way the work is viewed, those sorts of things need to be addressed because we will we will see people more willing to work in the environments like aged care if, if they get a sense that they can make a difference and they can impact. And I think that was part of the attraction during the pandemic period that people who weren't really conscious of the aged care system saw that there were people in need, that there were people who perhaps they could um, support and and make some sort of difference. So I think there's something for us to leverage there and ensure that's uh, an influential factor in in the way systems are redesigned and, and certainly the way um, the system is is funded and regulated. That's such a great point. There is greater awareness around who the people are in long-term care and who our seniors are and how we value them. And, and, and people can make such a difference and just bring such joy and and life. When you think of what our older population have, have done, they've built communities, they've built their families, they've built our countries, and yet we owe them so much more. And I've I've always gravitated to working uh, with, with seniors and volunteering and that's uh, with the Alzheimer's Society and with others. And, you know, how do we introduce a younger population to those opportunities and, and help them value it and not, not let these opportunities go and sustain the focus? It's going to be an interesting time. I, I, have, I have to say that one of the important things uh, from our, our view that has really come through this is the, the greater recognition to invest. We have a lot of years to catch up on for we've been neglected for a very long time and and the investments that we've certainly had the benefit of uh, in Ontario over these past months and the commitment of new investments don't even bring us to a catch-up point. So we've got to continue to to be laser focused. Uh, We've got to continue to build our relationships and our partnerships uh, to uh, not accept the status quo and not any accept anything less than change really uh, interested in the parallels between Australia and uh, and Canada. I, I used to work on the legislative side and legislative process and always uh, looked for precedents in, in Australia. And because of the Commonwealth, I think there, there are opportunities to look at your models and have been keen to direct our government to Australia so that we can learn. Uh, you're, you're ahead of us on so many different fronts. Uh, I know quality indicators and thinking about outcomes and standards. Uh, you've, you've been through your commission. You've got a very different uh, structure of a model where you've, you've started to make progress. It's how, to, how do we learn from each other so we don't actually have to recreate the wheel? And how do we move, support each other in moving forward more quickly so that we don't have to repeat the mistakes? 
you know, there is urgency in, in this. And I, I think that's one of the things I certainly struggle with. You have those pinch points. And unfortunately, it is going to be election campaigns that will uh, drive a lot of the momentum. And uh, But how do you make sure that you're not a divisive issue? And, and in fact, it's one where all parties want to embrace you and, and, and move you forward. If there was one thing that you would hope to achieve to move things forward over the next year as you lead into to your election, what would be the one thing in, in your view that would make the most difference? I've got a response to that. Just before I do give you that answer, Donna, you just picking up your, your comments then, which were just very astute. One of the things that really trying to promote here is that the solutions will need to be industry-led, community-driven and then government-supported. I think one of the failings I would suggest of, of industry is that many are sitting back and waiting for a silver bullet by way of a government policy or some sort of government funding package. or That's just not going to happen, as, as sad as that might be. But we need to be leading the way as innovative providers, as an innovative industry, uh, as I said community by our sides and then government support in behind. And I think in terms of what we can learn from each other, that that's where we can collaborate really well across different countries, different regions and, and share our innovations, obviously share our challenges and, and problems too, but really learn from each other in terms of how we're pursuing opportunities and, and creating better systems, creating better solutions. So I think that's that's where it can be really powerful in terms of how we exchange and how we share. In terms of the one thing I would really want to see from our approach, it really comes back to that a needs-based system, a needs-based approach, and, and obviously underpinned by, by rights, the rights of older people. And to me, if we start with that, then right decisions will flow on from there and the right solutions will flow on from there. At the moment, or to this point at least, everything has been influenced either by economic drivers, funding envelopes, projections in terms of population or in terms of a range of different factors from time to time, but further and further away from the actual person who needs a service or needs care or needs support or needs a place to live. And if we have that needs-based approach driving everything, then we'll get more and more decisions right. And my ongoing recommendation and request to government has been to take a whole of ageing view of things, not look at aged care or long-term care in isolation. Don't look at employment in isolation or housing in isolation. You've got all these different aspects of the ageing journey which really need to be looked at in a coordinated way so that policy design, so that societal views can be through a much different lens and one which sees older people as being uh, having rights that should be protected, having opportunities that should be pursued and having potential to be realised. So that's my, my big ask is more of a whole of ageing approach rather than a fragmented approach and that we have a needs-based system so that people can access what they want, where they want it and from whom they want it. Well, well, well said and uh, a, a great, uh, a great statement and uh, wish to, uh, to, to end on. And I think we should all aspire for that. So thank you, Marcus. This has been wonderful. Very thoughtful. Very, very thoughtful. My pleasure. Thanks for the conversation, Donna, and I hope listeners can extend their support to older people and also to those involved in, in working in the industry. 
Marcus, thank you so much for sharing your valuable insights and reflections on the state of seniors care in Australia. It's helpful for all of us to share our stories, but also to hear different perspectives on global aging. I really do hope that our conversation helps to spark positive change in our sector, not only in Australia and Canada, but around the world. For our listeners, you can follow Marcus on Twitter at MVR76. That's at MVR76. Following my conversation with Marcus, I took away a number of key insights. Both of our countries are focused on expanding our workforce, and there is no question that this is the monumental task. This is such a challenge for all of us globally. In Australia, Marcus noted that the pandemic is drawing new people into the field who want to make a difference in the lives of seniors and who now understand the importance of providing that care and support. Given the media attention and indeed some of the tragic losses in long-term care in Ontario, we are seeing some of this in our province. There's been tremendous response to the Government of Ontario's announcements that it would be funding college tuition to attract more than 16,000 new personal support workers into our sector. Marcus also noted that the people who have the most negative view of seniors' care tend to be those without direct experience. The opportunity for us is to enhance that direct care and experience and bring more people into the sector to understand the benefits, its strengths, and its virtues. In both countries, there are increased efforts to look at providing more seamless and expanded progressive models of care to seniors following a whole of aging approach. In Australia, Marcus believes that the answer is for seniors care providers to lead the way with innovation. We are both of the view that what we really need is reform that is industry-led, community-driven, and government-supported. What we need is a system based on the needs of the people we serve, underpinned by the rights of older persons. We can't rely on government to get it right. We need leadership and we need collaboration, we need partnership. And we are already seeing this leadership in Australia and we're seeing this leadership in Ontario's long-term care sector. In upcoming episodes, we'll have an opportunity to speak with some of these innovators. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our next episode will be airing on August 31st. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Stay well.